0: Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. In October of last year, we released a podcast about something called proof of concept centers. These centers are a very specific response to a big problem in developing new technologies, the fact that most basic research is done at universities, but it's for profit companies that most often turn this research into something we can actually use or see the benefit of in our daily lives. And academia and industry have entirely different ways of thinking about how to develop new ideas and what to do with them when you have. Here's John Lee. A senior associate at Osage University Partners, a venture capital firm that specializes in investing in new technologies that come out of academia
1: sometimes what you get when you uh, when you interact with university spinouts is you find that a lot of people think of companies in terms of technology and, and and they think of how technology can be applied, but they don't necessarily think about product and and what I mean by that is how potential customers will interact with the technology rather than the technology is a standalone.
0: What he's getting at is that when university researchers come up with new ideas, they're generally only interested in whether something can work well enough to be written about in an academic paper, which is often very different from getting it to work well enough to be a viable tool in the real world. Here's Doug Berkeley, executive director of a proof of concept center called Nexus New York.
2: Lots of great inventions take place at universities, and very rarely are those inventions translated to the market in the form of uh, products or services. So, in a lab, it's common to build something at the you know the, I've, I've built my novel nanomaterial at the picoliter level, right?
0: Just to jump in here a picoliter is one trillionth, or one millionth of one millionth of a liter. Sorry to interrupt.
2: Well, that might not be exactly what industry is looking for. It's one thing to generate some data in a lab. It's quite another to generate, you know, kind of excitement and interest from a customer.
0: And as we heard in that previous episode... This difference of perspective creates a serious gap in the development of new technologies. More often than not, cutting-edge science that might have the potential to solve some of humanity's most serious problems never leaves the lab. Because the people developing it don't have the interest or the know-how to actually turn it into real marketable products that people could actually buy and use. It's just not what they're trained for. And that's what these proof-of-concept centers are for to find talented academic researchers who have a good idea and the desire to turn that idea into a valid commercial product and give them the funding, training, and guidance they need to make that happen. Here's Julia Bird, operations manager for another proof-of-concept center called PowerBridge New York.
3: So we help uh, researchers at these institutions who have technologies that they've developed in the lab. So they have a working prototype in the lab, a bench-scale prototype. We give them some funding and some entrepreneurial education to help commercialize those technologies, preferably through a startup. So we help these researchers, usually the graduate students, found a startup around their technology.
0: And today, we're going to look at two of these proof of concept centers in detail. PowerBridge, which pulls its talent from six institutions in and around New York City. Columbia University, the City University of New York, Stony Brook University, NYU's Tandon School of Engineering, Cornell's new NYC Tech campus, and the Brookhaven National Laboratory, and Nexus New York, which casts a net across the whole state, including major upstate institutions like Cornell's main campus, the Rochester Institute of Technology, and several campuses of the State University of New York system. Both of these centers were funded by NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, with a very specific mission: to direct the proof-of-concept center idea to the problem of making cleaner energy. Here's Pat Sappinsley, managing director of CleanTech Initiatives at the Tandon School.
4: Well, it obviously it all feeds into climate change. You know, this is. Uh, uh, I don't even think it's a matter of belief. The facts are that climate change is human-caused, and it's human-caused because of enormous carbon emissions, and so many of those carbon emissions are unnecessary. There are ways through energy efficiency and through clean energy generation to drop our carbon emissions, and what that takes are some market tools. You know, we need policy tools, we need education, and we need market tools.
0: And each of these centers has a careful, multi-stage process for finding the right researchers to turn into the entrepreneurs who can create these market tools. They're looking for scientists with new technologies that could really make a difference, and also the right drive to turn that tech into viable businesses. Here's Jim Aloise, director of PowerBridge, followed by Mr. Berkeley.
5: So the first uh, step uh, is a pre-proposal that the teams submit, very short, very brief, just kind of uh, capturing what the overall idea is. So we can do a little bit of uh, initial filtering. Is it really clean tech by, you know, a reasonably broad definition? Um, We run them by the judges and they take a quick look at what is essentially about a one to two page overview of the technology that they look to commercialize and, and their first feel for what the market looks like for that technology.
2: We uh, we have about eight or ten open-ended questions that we ask uh, that we ask applicants, um, and the questions vary from, you know, if successful, what is the energy impact of your of your innovation? Uh, we ask them to explain what is the industry problem that they're going after. What they understand of the uh, the competitive landscape, so what other technologies might might be available to solve those problems through the course of the program, so we're trying to we're trying to assess whether or not there's a there's a good fit with the program. Try to make sure we we uh, you know we're picking applicants who are who are focused, motivated, interested in commercialization.
0: Here's Mr. Lee again. He's one of the judges for Powerbridge's application process.
1: It isn't purely quantitative. It's more of a discussion amongst the judges on which are the most promising proposals. And then from that point, the uh, proposals that are selected to move forward uh, receive continued mentoring and and, uh, continued uh, kind of resources uh, to to different people and access different people. And then uh, the proposals are refined and matured over time, and And there's no set number of how many proposals should get grants. So that's another aspect of the program, which I really like, where you're really giving grants um, to uh, projects that you think are really worthwhile funding.
5: Here's Mr. Alois. So we fund them. uh, They get up to $150,000 per team. All of this money is doled out in tranches that are based on meeting milestones. So it's not cost incurred. It's meeting milestones, business and technical milestones the first business milestone they have to meet is they have to interview 50 customers before they get their next tranche of funding.
0: And that early stage process of being forced to get out into the world and actually speak to the people who you hope might want to buy your product can be unbelievably eye-opening to the scientists involved. Here's Ms. Bird.
3: So they actually have to get out of their labs and talk to real people real potential comp- customers that might actually buy this product once it's ready to be bought. And they use those insights to help guide how they actually develop their technology. They figure out what values are really important, what features are really important, who really is their customer. A lot of times the teams discover that actually their technology is suited for better suited for an entirely different market than they originally thought. So these customer interviews are fact-finding missions. They're really trying to get an idea of what product they need to build in order to have it be bought and adopted by the market.
0: Here's Philip Malkitsky, co-founder of Chromosense, a company created through the PowerBridge program.
6: So It's, it's kind of a difficult process um, because you know prior to that, we would really bounce ideas off of each other within the group, and you're pretty much always getting a yes. So to go out and kind of almost cold call uh, and just really try and listen as much as we can to what their pains were, how they kind of dealt with their problems, uh, maybe some certain solutions they may have tried, and then kind of see if that fit what we were thinking.
0: Mr. Meklitski's team, who were developing an oxygen sensor they hoped would be useful for environmental cleanup projects, learned that their laboratory models weren't successfully anticipating all of the challenges their product would face when it was deployed in a real-world setting.
6: Our primary concern for a long time was dealing with the chemical durability of our probes. Um, And after speaking to a few customers, we realized pretty quickly that it's about half of the issue that uh, they come across in the field. And another half was really kind of fouling from Different biological contaminants and things that might end up on your sensors. So, by speaking to these people, we realized that there's, you know, another half of the puzzle that we kind of need to figure out. Ran some tests and um, essentially have dealt with uh, the issue. But this is not something that we really thought of prior to the grant.
0: And here's Alex Yu, founder and CEO of Leonano another startup that completed this program successfully.
7: So when I first started this program, you know, I received their money so I can travel to talk to my customers, which in my case are the battery uh, manufacturers. When I went there, you know, I was completely shocked. You know, when I saw it in the lab, you know, quietly in Cornell is, you know, I'm developing the best science out of the world, the best science I can publish on Nature and Science. But when I went to talk to the people who are using them, they, they do not agree, you know, uh, for one of the customers, they actually <laughs> do not agree any of this. So we feel on one side really ashamed for not really understanding what the customers are, but from the other side, we realize this is the time for us to pivot. And we've got to find out what the best science is, but what we really want to find out is what the customers want and what their problems are and whether or not we can solve their problems.
0: Dr. Yu's company makes materials that can be used to improve the performance of lithium ion batteries. And they came up against the realization that in order for an industry to adopt a new technology, it can't just be better than what they're already using. It has to be enough better to justify the cost of retooling their entire supply chain.
7: We started with uh, one type of material in the battery, and that's just called the material A. Um, where, you know, we, we have obtained a fantastic science, you know, in the lab. Um, but when we talked to our customers, they said, you know, well, this is great, you know. Um, number one, it costs more than today's material. Number two, it required us to change our existing infrastructure in order to adapt your technology. So it's not really truly a so-called dropping replacement. It means, People have to change a lot of their stuff to make your stuff work, and, and for majority of them, they do not have the money, resources, or patience to even look at it. Um, so that's number two. Number three is, uh, while we're realizing this material provides benefits through certain aspects of the spectrum, it's not a full spectrum beneficial. It, it, it has some other drawbacks that people do not realize when they're doing research. So it, when, when, whenever you want to introduce a new technology to the market, right, it's going to be better in the price, better in the quality and cheaper in the price. And, and and it just can't have any much drawbacks as the existing technologies are.
0: Here's Frank Zamatero, a successful entrepreneur who served as a mentor to some of the PowerBridge teams.
1: You don't know what you're doing is right or wrong until you start to do it. I'm getting it in, in, into the market and into the hands of real users and real customers as soon as possible to really flesh out uh, the reality of making whatever they're developing uh, necessary and needed by um, the commercial market.
0: Here's Mr. Berkeley.
2: So I I think phase one is is really is a transformation, right? They come in with a cool technology. They come out with a business model, which has ideally been somewhat rigorously tested by interaction with potential customers and with industry participants. The three big questions are, who's the customer? What's the customer's problem? And what's my value proposition? So uh, we, we, we ask them to do a lot more than that. But, but if they can answer those three questions in the first 10 or 12 weeks of the program, they're, they're absolutely on the right track.
0: And this is just the beginning of more than a year of refinement and mentorship. Here's Mr. Aloise, followed by Ms. Bird.
5: You know, they're, they're always in the process of testing hypotheses about what their, their business model is. They are in search of a business model. So we take them through, um, guiding them through more hypotheses that they need to test. It's always it's about the scientific method that they're very used to. Here's what we've observed. Here's what we think is our hypothesis. Let's go out and test it. First, they're hypothesizing about the value proposition and the customer segments. Then they're hypothesizing about the next steps, like how do I get to those customers? Um, you know, where do they buy? How do they buy? What are their, um, what are, are their are purchasing authority? Things like that.
3: At the end of the year, one has a working commercial prototype, something that they can put into a customer's hands to go test in a real-world environment. They also know exactly who their customer is and why they want to buy this product.
0: Now, the thing about these kinds of technologies is that they take a long time to develop. So it will be several more years before we really start seeing the kind of results the organizers of these centers hope for. But even in just the 3 years they've been operating, there's quite a lot to be proud of. Here's Mr. Berkeley. So we we've worked
2: with 22 different scientific teams in the first 2 years of the program and we're currently working with another 8. In in the first 2 cohorts of the 22 13 formed Startup companies, as a result of their participation in the program, and eight of those went on to raise some external money. Uh, four of those companies have gone on to make sale of, of uh, first product, and you know that really, in my mind, is the is the, the the key the key milestone, right? The fact that somebody that a customer is willing to part with dollars. in order to to purchase a product.
0: And the technologies that these teams are developing really couldn't be more diverse.
2: We worked with uh, a research team from the State University of New York at Binghamton that developed a nanomaterial which can survive very high processing temperatures and which blocks uh, infrared light. And so, that nanomaterial could be used, it could be integrated into every window and can be used as a passive solar. So if you block the IR light, you block the heat, and you reduce the requirement for energy to, uh, to run your HVAC systems. One of the technologies that comes out of Cornell University, uh, they are working to synthesize a polymer membrane that can be, that can operate in an alkaline environment. And that's important because you can potentially remove the precious metals that are required to manufacture a fuel cell. And the precious metals plus the membrane make up more than 50% of the cost of a fuel cell. And so there's a potential to significantly lower the price of of a fuel cell technology.
0: Here's Ms. Bird.
3: There's there's so many cool things. (laughs) One of uh, the coolest ones that I think we've seen is It's a railway energy harvester, so it's basically this box that you put on a railway tie next to a track. As the train goes by, the track vibrates and it converts that kinetic energy into electrical energy. So they can use that electricity to power sensors and all sorts of trackside applications. A lot of people don't realize that there are a number of um, ungated, uncontrolled, train crossings where it's just a sign and you the driver have to stop and look both ways before you cross the tracks so it's something like 770 people die every year by getting hit by trains so this is something that they would eventually like to (laughs) prevent Uh, in the meantime they're mostly powering sensors so train tracks go through the middle of nowhere for the most part there is no grid around there to supply electricity. So there's dark areas where they don't really know what's going on with the trains, if there's a problem with the track or the train or where it is or how fast it's going. So right now the railway industry is just looking to get an understanding, I- information essentially, and this this device can help make that happen.
0: And because they want to open themselves up to the most innovative ideas that they can, Nexus New York, the Upstate Center, is even accepting applications from people who are not directly affiliated with the university. Something really unusual for proof-of-concept centers.
2: And on the surface, that sounds like that might be a little crazy, right? Because most of us don't have, uh, you know, a wet lab in our, in our garage. But we, have, we do have a couple of interesting cases that we've, uh, that we've worked with here. And, uh, one of the graduates of our, of our program formed a company called Molecular Glasses and molecular glasses is interesting in that it is a couple of research chemists from Eastman Kodak and those uh, those research chemists have been working on uh, again on nanomaterials for uh, organic uh, organic light emitting diodes and so you know oleds are likely going to uh, to replace LEDs when it comes to both uh, both TVs and when it comes to solid state lighting. And there's a couple of there's a couple of significant drawbacks to OLEDs. One of them is that the materials simply don't have the lifetime that is required especially for the lighting application. And the scientists from uh, from Kodak were able to use some of their past expertise to develop a uh, material which can last much longer in, in, that, in that application.
0: And these programs aren't just good for the participants, and they aren't just good for the environment. They have the potential to be really good for the economy of New York, raising its profile as a world center for this kind of technology. Here's Mr. Lee, followed by Ms. Sappensley.
1: I would say that prior to... Uh, PowerBridge beginning. I didn't really think of New York as a as a potential clean tech hub, and one of the the I guess unintended consequence, and maybe an intended consequence of PowerBridge is because it is one of the last remaining programs that that is still pretty bullish on clean tech, um, and and last a really kind of high quality program there. Um, it, they're able to pull a, a pretty good quality group of investors uh, to New York every year and, and, and get involved in a lot of these projects in New York uh, where I would say that normally investors wouldn't have looked at, at in the past. And it, it, it's pretty impressive that they've been able to do that because they're they're bringing investors from the West Coast and investors in Boston and, and Chicago um, to New York to look at clean tech projects, which I think is a great success and, and speaks pretty, pretty well of the program that these investors come back every year to do that
4: having an economy in New York City that was so completely dependent on the finance industry was a mistake and having the talent that we have with the downstate universities uh, in this area was a missed opportunity and to fund those universities to scale up and meet the challenge of climate change um, was something that was possible and necessary we are really scaling up now. The time is right now to invest in clean tech. It's happening.
0: Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative oversight by Diana Olson Friedman. Thanks to all the experts who appeared in this episode. John Lee of Osage University Partners, Doug Berkeley of Nexus New York, Julia Bird and Jim Aloise of Powerbridge, New York, Pat Sappinsley of New York University, Philip Meklitsky of Chromosense, Alex Yu of Leonano, and Frank Zamatero of Rentricity. For more information about the Academy and its events and publications, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes and follow us on social media, at Sciences on Twitter, or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.